Chuck Hillig, thank you for joining me. Very much appreciated. I am so happy to be here and to talk to you. Thanks. Yeah, Chuck, uh, I come across you uh, maybe two or three months ago. I listened to your Buddha at the gas pump conversation, maybe 10 years ago now, I think it was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, I watched you on uh, the Science and Non-Duality conference, I think, maybe five or six years ago. We did a conversation. Right. And I thought, yeah, let's let's get him on and uh, have a conversation and see where it goes. <laughs> so, Chuck, um, you've written numerous books. You've uh, you do conferences and everything. Do you mind going into some of the story of Chuck Hillig? So, for the people that are listening, there's a bit of a reference point. Yeah, I know that's always a, a, a question that shows up, and I'm always a little bit disconcerted as to how the best way to approach that mm. because. Um, it's like then I'm kind of being the character and I'm going to go back and I'm in like act four of a play and I got to go back to what this character was doing in act two and describe how he woke up. But there's really no character there at all. There's really only the actor. And the actor, of course, doesn't change at all. The actor doesn't get awakened. The actor doesn't suddenly get enlightened or have any kind of discovery. Of That's just part and parcel of the, the, the avatar that, that he's playing and so this chuck hillig gig that i'm on right now is just the avatar of consciousness because that's all there is it's the same consciousness that underlies you me and everything else that we that we mm. think and know about mm. yeah it's always a difficult one because i like to start the conversation with that um but oh okay i will tell there, there, there are a few but let me say Chuck, there are a few people who uh are okay and they share it all and there are the other half of the people are like well if i tell a story it's going to put ideas into people's minds and they're trying to grasp onto them okay. so yeah got it all right well let me tell you a story then yeah tell us a story yeah long time ago in a universe far far <laughs> i i used to be a catholic i was raised as a catholic you know in catholic grade school with the sisters of saint joseph a catholic uh, high school with the dominican priests um, a Catholic university with the Jesuits. I had a very good education, but deeply steeped in all things Catholic and Catholic-related. And around the time I was 21, 22, I began to become disenchanted with, with what they were, the hardline Catholic party line. It was just hard for me to, uh, to accept and embrace anymore as much as I used to in the old days before that. And I began to ask questions. And the questions that I was asking were questions that that weren't um, easily answered by by the priests, even the Jesuits. And I I began to take some steps back from from my strong belief before, and uh, in a sense, I kind of went into a spiritual wasteland for like two or three years. I did not know what I was believing. I was kind of tossing around and and thinking, well, I don't like this and I don't like that. And I'd gotten married, meanwhile, and I married a very sincere Catholic girl. I mean, she went to sleep with a rosary in one hand and a statue of Mary in the other. And I mean, it was really, she was hardcore. Hmm. And I was drifting away. I had drifted away. And and I I was working at that point as a caseworker for the Bureau of Child Welfare in New York City. And um, a friend of mine said, oh, you've got to go read this book called Siddhartha. And I went, What's that? And I never thought very much about it. And then I went to a bookstore a couple of weeks later, and right there, you know, I level. There it was, 
staring at, at me, and I said, wow, I, I'll check that out, and I did. When I read Siddhartha, it, it changed my mind, it changed my heart, really. I, I, it opened me up to so many other um, feelings and um, vistas, and one of the things that I remember feeling was some sense of anger, even regret, as to the lack of attention that my Jesuit teachers had paid to things that were Eastern-related. They would be very dismissive about that, saying Hinduism, Buddhism, they don't have the way, you know, we've got the way, and aren't you lucky that you're one of us? That kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, oh, our tribe is better than your tribe. And and so then I, when I read that book, and it moved me to such an extent, such a degree, I, I just opened my heart up and started to read everything I could on Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism and Zen, and went back to Taoism. And then um, the years go on, a little fast forward here, uh, around, I was like 29, and a friend of mine said, oh, you have to go read something about or buy um, Sri Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi. And I went, you mean Maharishi Mahish Yogi? He says, no, 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 Ramana Maharshi. I went, okay. So he gave me this book, and it was uh, the, the talks with Ramana Maharshi. And when I started to read those dialogues and see what he had written and see the connections that, that he had made with the people, um, I, I just melted away, and I, I've been figuratively at at his at his feet since that time, and that was like, well, I'm I'm almost 83 years old, which is kind of amazing. How did that ever happen? But for like more than 52 years, I've been really at the feet of Ramana Maharshi, surrendered totally to him. I've been to his ashram a couple of times. Um, so then, at that point, I I went down that road of of looking for what he was pointing at and and kept on going further and further on into that that space if if there is indeed a going further into it mm. and when you say what ramana uh, sri ramana maharshi was pointing to you mean the self-inquiry the who am i the, the the essential nature right the uh the, uh, the, the the inquiry is really yeah the, the who am I and I I always like to kind of uh, rephrase it as what am I because who seems to imply for a lot of people that there's a person involved and that if it's not me that I'm talking about then who is this who there's but but maybe there's no who so what seems better for me to grasp onto so what what am I and um, then of course. From Ramana Maharshi, it's it's an easy segue into, well, maybe not for some, but for some, uh, into Nisargadatta Maharaj, who says, you know, I am that, and and so I read a lot of his books and and went down that, whatever he was uh, being into. In fact, I went over to his place in um, in Mumbai. Uh, he's this was after he did after he died, um, but I went over there to his, his place where the, he used to hold those. Satsangs in Mumbai. Mm. Yeah, I'm reading his book at the moment again for like the third time. Uh, Maharaj yeah. at the moment, yeah. Um, yeah, so I've got a lot of questions, Chuck. Uh, I believe you were a psychotherapist. Is that correct? That's true. I've been a, a state licensed 
uh, psychotherapist in California since 1978. So we're talking, what, 45 years or so. Yeah. Do you, are you still practicing now? Or? Well, yes and no. I'm, I'm still state licensed. However, since I'm currently a, uh, a permanent resident of the state of Virginia, I have to have my, my license be inactive. But it's still, uh, I'm still licensed in California, but it's inactive, which means uh. that if somebody comes and wants to deal with psychotherapy and stuff with me, uh, that's fine, but they can't go to their insurance company and, and get reimbursed for this at all. Okay. Uh, but I was in practice uh, for um, professional practice for decades in California. I, I was in private practice for about more than two decades. And I also worked at psychiatric hospitals running uh, groups, group therapy and uh, treatment programs. I worked as a clinical counselor at a Navy base for about five years and uh, and dealt with a lot of the, the guys coming back from the sand with PTSD and, and their family issues and things like that. So I, I've had quite a, quite a good range of um, therapeutic experiences with thousands, literally thousands and thousands of people in various stages of distress from little kids all the way up to people older than me. Mm. Uh, the the reason I'd like to bring this up and ask, uh, I've asked numerous people, what value does psychotherapy have in, uh, in the dream world, let's call it for the lack of a better term? Sure. It's like uh, proposing a dream solution to a dream problem. Would that right. be correct? Well, yeah, no, that, that's exactly what it does. A, a good therapist will help solve, help you to find ways of coming to terms with the realities of what's so and what's real and what's what present, uh, and, and to embrace the reality of that and to to become more at peace with, with those things, as opposed to a guru who wants to do something else. A guru will, will challenge you to discover who is it who believes that they have a problem? Who is the one who says, ah, oh, this is my problem? The, the therapeutic patient comes in and says, I have these problems. He's identified himself as being the problems. Now, the worst thing I could do would be to say, oh, you know, it's all just consciousness. This is the play of consciousness. Not to worry, you're not, you know, <laughs> it's all imagination. Yeah. That, that is such a dishonor of of them and of 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 the dream it's like it's like you you're going and and you're you're here in this in this dream and you're not willing to participate in it and mm. and that's a dishonor to it you know if you're here be involved you don't have to be attached but be a hundred percent involved with it because all of this is showing up for your own growth for your own edification so you use the word growth then. Does that suppose that there's some sort of path? Yeah, it does seem like that, doesn't it? That there's a path that you're over here, which is in quote-unquote unenlightened state, and you're going to go over here, which is an enlightened state, and that is the model for so many, that we're on this this ladder that somehow we have to climb up and, and do meditation and go to satsans and become a vegan and a... <laughs> different stages in order to rise up to become one of these spiritual luminaries. But uh, but how do you let go of the idea that there is no path at all 
the only way to do that is to just be with how this is, but that means letting go of the belief that you are living your life out of some remembered past and that you're living your life into some kind of imagined future and that there's this time linearity that that began way back you know 50 years ago when you were born and it's going to continue on hopefully for decades after where you will you know cross over this the fabled rainbow bridge but you're on this on this pathway and um that's that's the model but what would happen if you just took away the past and the future and said there is no moment that you're living into there are no past moments that you're living out of but there's no next moment here that this truly as alan watts has put it is it this is truly it this moment is all of it and there's nothing missing in this moment all of consciousness is always always present for you every single moment there's nothing missing there's nothing there's no more consciousness around the corner or down the street or on the other side of the world or something you're seeing the whole thing right here to wrap your mind around that you know if you want to use the analogy of having a mind um saying that this is truly it and i'm seeing what is there's nothing else to see this is absolutely all of it Mm. You, you there was a point there that made me question do you about the mind do you believe uh, i suppose that's probably the wrong word but do you accept that we have a mind well i don't accept that there's a we <laughs> yeah okay uh you know where i'm going you know what i'm trying to grasp at yeah the the, the mind the mind well i kind of you know you know since we're in the computer age here you know, I kind of I look at the uh, like the ego as being um, a, like a software application that get that gets installed, and the mind is like the operating system. So the the mind is is there, and it it, it you know the it gets installed. The ego gets installed. I don't know six months, eight months, ten months when that sense of differentiation sets place, uh, comes in and you start to separate, I am not the bottle, I am not the breast, you know. Uh, sometimes I yell and they don't, they don't come and take care of me and things. So, um, but that sense of separation comes in there, but it's, 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 all, it's all part of um, a dance that somehow consciousness wants to do for itself. Who knows why? A lot of it, you know, these questions are going to end up with there's no rhyme or reason why these things unfold or unravel as they do it's just how it is and if you surrender to how it is uh as opposed to submitting to how it is submitting is you know giving up and and surrendering is more giving in and just allowing it and being with it to be with whatever shows up and and i think that's that's really the best way of navigating and that's the wrong word of of just experiencing the dream um mm. i like the um i like the the philosophy uh, that the uh, the stoics talk about amor fati amor fati are you familiar no that? not no yeah amor fati is two words and it means the love of one's fate the love of one's destiny of one's path of one's uh 
where you're going, of just how things are. You love that enormously. You, you embrace it 100% instead of doing this resistance. It's in the resistance that you create the suffering. If you don't resist it and just experience it, then it just becomes like, well, it's pain because pain just comes with the territory. But when personal pain is viewed through the lens of, a, of an individual um, ego, it's then interpreted and experienced as suffering, as personal suffering. It's mm. happening to me, to me. What role does suffering do you believe that suffering has in that awakening process? Say that again. What 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 suffering? What 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 role do you you think that suffering plays in the awakening process? Um, I I suppose it's different for for everyone. Some people, I would suspect. Well, we we know you know they they have that personal suffering through the uh, the, the personal attachment mm. to the sense of doership. Um, because the ego attaches itself to, I am this thinker, I am this feeler, I am this speaker, I am this this doer. These things are happening to me, which which is a, much, very much akin to having the character in, in the in the play identifying himself so much with what what his character is doing. Though the, the actor. Um, he, he be, actually becomes that. So he starts to think that whatever is happening to the character is, in fact, happening to me or to him. So mm -hmm. he's made that kind of connection and he doesn't differentiate that and say, well, hey, the character is going through this, but the, the actor um, is, is not doing that. He's going through it, but he's not attached to it. For example, like at the end of uh, Othello, uh, it, you know, Iago gets taken away to the torturers, but the actor who's playing Iago does fine. He goes out for a beer with Othello, you know, after the play is over. So yeah. nobody gets hurt because he's not attached to it. But if you're attached, that's where the suffering will come in because mm -hmm. there's a personal ego-based um, connection that, that that you've made to that. Yeah, so, so what... So the characters that are playing the dream, the characters that are playing this out, what do they have a choice or is choice sort of encoded within the dream? Well, let me ask you this. Um, one of your guys wrote Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> so did, do Romeo and Juliet, do they have choices? Could, could they, choose at the end of the play not to commit suicide? It well, it, wouldn't, it like wouldn't be the play, would it? It wouldn't be the play. And it seems like every single thing that led up to him, they were making rational choices. It all seemed to be fine. So then when they finally ended up making those choices, it just seemed to be, well, yeah, I can see why they would come to that that kind of realization or that kind of connection that they had with each other. They, there was no other way it could have played out. I think that's that's true for for all of us. I don't think I think that that free will is an illusion, and comma and I also think that it's important for us to pretend that it's not. Mm. 
So we can pretend like, you know, I have this choice to hear and do that and all that, because uh, the, the dream characters that you've created will, as a rule, hold you personally re responsible for what it is that, that you're doing. They, they will connect you with that and, you know, come along and cancel your vote and lock you up. See, if I was to play devil's advocate on that, Chuck. Sure. People would say, well, you're just completely lacking self-responsibility. Oh, no, you're always responsible, but you're just not to blame. There's no fault or blame for, for what happens, but you are 100% responsible. And here's the paradox. You also have 100% no control. Mm, that is a paradox, yeah. Yes, it is. And, and you know, if you want to quote-unquote deal in this wonderful, wacky world of non-duality, you got to be comfortable with paradox. Mm. Yeah, that's why I called this podcast The Dancing Paradox, because my yeah, mind I my mind simply true. cannot uh, comprehend. I'm, I'm a very much a seeker. I'm stuck in the seeking mode, and it's it drives me nuts a lot of the time. Oh, no, I want you to go seek. I want you to... Seek all you want. Just go seek until you can find. <clears throat> see what see what you can find. Mm. If you had to seek, you'd be pushing it down and saying, "I'm quite beyond seeking. I'm much aloof <laughs> than that." Yeah. No, that's dishonoring it. If seeking mm. is what's showing up for you, you got to go on that track. You got to go on that quest. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great point. Um, uh, and what I like about you, Chuck, is that you. You keep everything so radically simple when a lot of the people who talk about this, it goes very complex. And we start talking about esoteric uh, levels of consciousness and all this type of stuff. And it gets quite difficult uh, for the average person, let's say, with respect to comprehend what's actually being spoken about. I couldn't agree with you more. I've seen that myself in many times. In fact, that, that was one of the reasons why I wrote my very, very first book book back in the 70s called um enlightenment for beginners i remember going to the bodhi tree bookstore which is the it was at that point the, the most famous <clears throat> um philosophy psych psychology kind of bookstore in west um west la and i would go there and i'd wander out up and down the aisles and i'd see all these these books and and volumes about non-dualism or um, eastern philosophy and I, i'd open them up and I'd see massive appendices and all these strange words in Sanskrit and levels and layers and slicing and dicing. <clears throat> and I, I came home and I said, there's got to be an easier way. If, it's, if, if the truth is truly simple, it should be able to be put simply. And so I remember very distinctly going to my house. I was living up in Ojai where Krishnamurti lived. Mm. And... Uh, I remember writing down all the words that I did not want to use in the book that I was wanting to write. Words like uh, ascended master. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> on and you just you can just imagine all those words because they I felt that they were tricky words. They were there were buzzwords that you would be going along, you'd read that word, and then in the reader's mind it would trigger something and the, the reader would probably tangentially go off saying, well, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about this. 
And then that would lead to another juncture and on and, and they'd be way lost. So what I wanted to do was to simplify it to such an extent that there was very little way that they could lose what I was saying. So I wanted to use almost monosyllabic words, mm. very simply and simply put, and just use, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 words on each page where they could actually follow it um, step by step. And then, you know, there's the end of it and take it or leave it, you know, you get what you get. But, uh, and so I did it that way. And, and uh, he, some people really responded. Other people continued to want, no, it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be more esoteric. It's gotta be special. And I noticed one thing, and maybe you had too, Alex, that a lot of the people that, that do that almost wear their, um, it's almost like a spiritual pride. Oh, mm. I've read these books and I've studied these these old texts and I've sat at the feet of these gurus and I've went to these satsans over here and I studied in India. And it's like um, they're, they're special certifications of being special and that look at me but it's spiritual pride obviously and, mm. and uh, some i i think the spiritual pride really uh is like the last bastion of of a of a terrified ego that's that's mm. getting dangerously close to being annihilated and is fearful yeah. of that and wants to say no you know i know this and this is this is what i have and uh, th that temptation of being special and knowing more uh, mm. is is really hard, you know. And then if you factor in uh, anything sexual, you know, oh my gosh, it gets real. As you, as we all know, it can go down pretty nasty, as as it were. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, you you brought up a couple of things there. I mean, I've been there to be fair. Like I've read, I don't know, countless books. And I sort of wore that with a badge of honor. I've read this many books and I've, this is what I've took from it. And and now, uh, and it pisses off the Christians sometimes. I say I say things like, um, if there was somewhere that the devil would hang out, he'd hang out in the spiritual marketplace. Because that is the <laughs> that is the last step. It seems that that's the last step that the ego is, is, is resistant to release. I totally concur. Right on. So yeah, the Christians hate that stuff, but it's uh, it makes me giggle, and we have good fun about it in the end, anyway. Uh, Chuck, we've um, meditation and self inquiry. If we if we can talk about that a little bit, um, a little bit like the 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 books, I suppose. I tend to see people doing meditation and self inquiry. They've read a lot about it. They think they might live a more peaceful life having doing these uh exercises but what i tend to see is that all all the people and again i've been there that they're, they're just trying to feel better they're just trying to have a better experience to what degree is that like a hindrance if there is such a thing to the waking up process i i don't I don't know. You know, I'm not going to pretend like I, I know. Uh, I've known people who have um, had experiences without having ever meditated at all. And I've known other people who have meditated for years. And 
you know, they had little insights and uh, aha moments, but mm. nothing really explosive at all. So who knows why it happens? Uh, you know, I, I've talked to people who have claimed that sometimes using like LSD or mm. uh, 5-MeO-DMT or, or one of the, the real heavy-duty psychedelics uh, are, are really quite useful to expand uh, a person's awareness, at, at least, and then it would give him a chance to have had that as kind of, oh, I remember what that was like, and maybe I can meditate into that thing. But it's it's that progression of wanting to do this. Mm. And if you look at it carefully, I think that that's all ego-based. The ego loves to have movement, either in thought or feeling or words. or It, it likes to have you go from what is into what isn't. It wants you to move there because in the moving of that, in just setting up that we're over here and we should go over here, that feeds the the belief that the ego is separate. Mm. Because mm. you can't move towards something that you, like you say, you already are. And the ego loves that. But it's very clever because it'll it'll disguise itself. It'll disguise itself. Like, let's go sit at this the feet of this guru. Let's go, you know, work on this esoteric new uh, spiritual practice at Esalen or something. Um, but it gives you a goal. Yeah. And as long as you're on that goal or on that path, the ego feels, okay, now we're going someplace. We're, we're getting some more stuff that we can put in our, our library, uh, our treasure chest of, of stuff that we can spout off at... Uh, cocktail parties and stuff and quote this this person or that person about what I know this and I did this and I did sensory deprivation things <laughs> on and on and on it's it's all spiritual pride it's like look at me the ego just loves that stuff but and when when it disguises itself in the realms of yeah but this is all very spiritual you're doing this for spiritual so it's somehow okay or somehow more permissible, but it's always moving away from what is. And mm. that's, that's the main thing of the ego, because the ego does not want to stay present. The ego wants to go someplace where it's not. And the ego thrives and survives by inserting itself into stories that it remembers about itself from this past that it's carrying around and believing or by inserting itself into stories about what's going to happen down the road. Mm. But the ego in the present moment is in a very weakened state because it has nothing feeding it. It has to, it has to feed on something. And the, the things that it likes to feed on is what's not present either. So it goes to the past to get what's not present or to the future. The goal stuff is great. It just wants to go from point A to point B. So that helps to validate that separation, that ego. But, you know, when you think about it, Alex, the ego is, is just a bundle of thoughts. It's a point of view that's centered around uh, an idea that I am the thinker, I am the feeler, I am the speaker, I am the doer, that there's a, that there's a, a person in there that all of these things are attached to and and the origin of, and I'm doing all of this. 
and instead of recognizing that it's all just consciousness i mean you know where is not consciousness there's no mm-hmm. such thing as not consciousness there's no such thing as not god it's all god it's all consciousness but the ego is not whether to do that the ego wants to hang on to thinking that no yeah there's there's god but there's also me there too <laughs> i want to be there too but <laughs> no it, it it just it won't work it's like when you when you get to the center there won't be anybody there to greet you sorry yeah i look at the animal kingdom and i do consider when i was sort of uh something happened in in, in this consciousness whatever however you want to explain it and I, I was considering the animal kingdom and i thought would a would an ant have any idea that there was even a sense of existence there would it even know it's alive would it have the mental capacity to be able to make that happen and what difference are we as human beings to the you know the mosquito that might be biting us at night time what difference are we in the sense of we're just a, the, a minuscule part of the natural kingdom uh i don't think there's a question there i, I mean could you extrapolate maybe well the um In spite of what it looks like, the dream world is not multitudinous in its uh, splendor. It looks that way, and it's not. It is all quintessentially only one thing. And the, the dream world that you experience has all arisen from within your own awareness. It shows up when there's a you that shows up to witness it and to observe it into manifestation. If you're not there, it's not there. Okay. When you go to sleep at night and go into dreamless sleep, the dream world literally just collapses onto you know a singularity in your heart of hearts and remains dormant, you can say there. And then in the morning you just recreate the whole thing, the web of of and 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 just get caught again on on the uh, the attachments that you have mm. that continued and then are are continuing and and buying into but there's that there's that realm of you have to be there much like you have to be there if you ever want to see a rainbow for a rainbow to show up there has to be the sun and the rain and there has to be an observer who is standing, interestingly enough, at 42 degrees. It's funny, you want to know yourself. 42 is at, the, <laughs> at 42 degrees. If you're standing at 42 degrees relative to the sun and the rain, there's the rainbow. You have to be there, though, for that rainbow to show up. You have to be present for the world to show up. Without you, no world. So the question that arises here is Chuck Hillig's on the other side of this screen to me. Sorry? It would seem so. It would certainly, it's apparently happening. So the question that arises there is, is Chuck there or is Chuck a figment of my imagination that is, that I have sort of created for myself? Yeah, go on, sorry. Uh, you you are not appearing in in my dream. You, I am showing up in your dream. 
you are the source of of the dream that you're having and your um mission path whatever is to own your own dream you have to own your own dream and hold yourself 100 percent responsible this is what's showing up this is where amor fati comes in when you love and embrace what's showing up for you at this moment in this time without having any resistance to it without saying no without saying yes but without saying i like 99.9 percent of it but the other <laughs> you know i don't like that part mm. i remember this great quote by mr gadada he says um you're having a dream that you call the world and he says the dream is not your problem mr gadada says your problem is that you only like certain parts of the dream and you don't like the other parts of the dream. So you differentiate, you say yes to this and say no to something else. But what would happen if you just made yes, your default position in life, made yes, your default position in life so that no matter what showed up, you said yes. Mm -hmm. And then people say, well, what happens if you see somebody getting hurt, you know, and a, a kid getting abused or something? Mm. You're just going to say yes to that? No. You go over, you say no. You Then you handle that. But what you're doing is you're saying yes to the fact that you're saying no. Mm. Yes to the fact that you're saying no. So the last thing that you actually say to yourself is yes. You put it, you put everything that shows up in a context of yes. I'm I'm embracing the wholeness and the um, splendor of who I am in all of my awfulness that that possibly and and certainly shows up from time to time. It does, no question about it. There, you know, it's but horror is part of that. Yeah, mm. I think a lot uh, questions arise quite often. You know, if there was a God uh, or consciousness, or whatever, why would they? do bad things why would there be you know as you said children being abused and whatever else and i find that like a question that can't really be answered uh by a sense of uh self because what what is arising there is there's darkness within me here so to put a judgment over there on somebody else or anything else like to me it's like um hypocritical it's, it's a question that comes up a lot. And I remember, and I'm sure you're familiar with the Bhagavad Gita with Krishna and Arjuna mm. and that story of, you know, Krishna is talking to Arjuna and Arjuna is lamenting uh, the fact that he's got to go down and fight that huge battle down in the valley. And there's a hundred thousand of his kinsmen on the other side. And mm. he's got to, you know, be involved in this horrific battle where everybody's going to slash and burn and kill and maim and, uh, pain and suffering and horror, and he's lamenting that to Krishna. And Krishna says, "Oh, don't worry about it." <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but he says, "It's all part of a dream. It's part of a dance. Get, get it. You know, fight the good fight. You're here. This is what's showing up for you in this moment. Um, play out your part. Play out your role. Throw yourself into it. It's all going to be okay. And it is always okay. Things always end up." okay if if you're willing to give up your idea about what okay is supposed to look like 
okay always looks exactly like how it is to a, and and i think that it's upon upon you to to align yourself with saying how it is is how it needs to be sometimes that's tough but because you have to do that without having any justification for saying it you can say i don't know why this needs to be happening but it's happening it's showing up like this um that's that's what's so and the way to to affect any kind of possible change is to get with what's so to tell the truth about it and then to move forward from that point because you know you can only change from where you're at i can't go to uh, my living room uh, from the bedroom right now because I'm not in my bedroom. I'm, I'm in my office here, so I have to mm -hmm. go to my bedroom and then into uh, the living room. So you, you change from where you're at. Yeah. So what, you know, like in the in the new age people, uh, a lot of them often talk about creating your own reality. Based on what, what you've said here, there is no creating going on. There is simply being aware of what's happening. Would that be correct? It, it, would, would it be correct in saying that? Yeah, I, there's no personal one who's actually creating it. It seems, it seems however, that what shows up um, is somehow resonating with uh, its reaction to what you fear, what you desire, what you believe, what you hope for, what you expect, all of those things seem to play a part in it. And then it, it, it seems to align itself with it because the universe loves you so much that it wants to give you what you are expecting. If you expect to have your relationships not be healthy and, and always to meet somebody who is going to be taking advantage of you or betraying you and stuff, mm -hmm. you will you will seek out and and only be attracted to those people that will fulfill that function for you through your expectations because you want to be right and the universe wants to support that would that be where the idea of unconditional loving would come in it's completely supportive and uh forever it's like eternally loving yeah, unconditional loving, that's that's tough because most, you know, <clears throat> most of our relationships are conditional. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, and I and I think that's it's probably within the realm of the dream world, a very wise thing to do. So I, I used to encourage uh, my um, my clients to uh, um, to love unconditionally as much as you can but only make a conditional commitment. The commitment to the relationship has to be conditional. The love can be unconditional. I mean, why would you want to stay with somebody who is abusing your children or freebasing cocaine or something in the back room and mm. stuff? So the commitment is conditional, but the love is can be unconditional. You could separate, you could love them unconditionally, 12,000 miles away, you don't have to live with everybody you love. You don't have to live with everybody you love. Mm. 
Jim Newman, I'm not sure if you know him. He he made a comment. I know yeah, yeah. I yeah. I asked him a question. I can't remember what I asked, but he turned around and it was quite profound. He said, you can't get away from unconditional freedom or unconditional love because you're bathing in it. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, you're swimming in love. I mean, love is really all that there is. Uh, and, and if you don't see it, um, what stops you from, from not seeing it is uh, a belief that you have that says, I know what love should look like. And it doesn't look like this. And if it doesn't look like this, then it's not it. But what would happen if you just took the position that said love is what's what's showing up? This is this is love. Love is truly what is. Love is what is. If you lived in that space, then you would be swimming in love. You would be love itself. Mm. It's almost too simple for the mind to accept. That's that's what makes it so damn difficult. It's so damn obvious. Uh, it it it's like no, that can't be so. We just skim on over it, and the part that skims on over it is that ego that doesn't want to do that because the ego knows that that is like where paradise is. That's that's where the opening is, mm-hmm. and the ego knows very well it cannot exist in paradise. It only wants to be on its way to paradise. Yeah. It only wants to be seeking, doesn't want to be arriving. Mm. That's too dangerous. <laughs> doesn't want to get close. In mm. fact, if it starts to get really close to, wow, a real opening, it'll subtly sabotage you and give you some other, uh, something else to chase, some other distraction to go on around there and, and it'll pull you away for a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade on different pursuits and stuff because it wants to protect itself from annihilation. And it'll do that through distraction and uh, uh, really, wow, look at this over there. There's something shiny. Let's go check that out. Or there's, new, there's a new guru in town. Let's go see. <laughs> mm, do you think that the conditions have to be ripe there's like a ripening of of whatever it is consciousness for for the recognition of it or do you think it can be forced i don't think it can be forced but i i do think that somehow ripeness plays into it there's this great line from uh, shakespeare's king lear and the line is ripeness is all ripeness is everything when, when there's a ripeness there, that, that will show up. And, and if, if they're not ripe, it, it, it's not ripe. No matter how many times you knock on the door, it's not going to handle, it's not going to you know open. Um, but who knows what triggers that? Who knows uh, why that would happen? And remember, all of this is not happening specifically to a person because there are no people here. You know, it mm. looks like there's people here and there's people there, but there's no people. Nisargadatta wasn't a person, neither is Ramana Maharshi or Christ or Buddha. All of these energies have their origin within the heart of hearts of who you are. You created Buddha and, mm. and Nisargadatta and, Mah- and all of those people. They have their origin from within you. 
you you wrote the Quran, you wrote the Bible, you mm. wrote the Bhagavad Gita, you wrote the Upanishads. None of these things have their origins separately from you. They emanate from from the heart of who you are. All of these things. Rumi said it beautifully. He said, "Why do you why do you weep?" Rumi said, "Don't you know that you are the source, and this whole world is springing up, springing up from you." This world is springing up from you. I mean, if you just look around your your room, wherever you're sitting and you're listening to this right now, all of that has emanated from within you. You are the origin of the world. You you are that. All of that is is a manifestation of who you are, right there, right mm. now. It's not something that's that's foreign to you. You are the source of the world. You are that. And and to own that and go, ooh, wow, that's pretty heavy. Yes. So that means that all of the people that you know and love, they're all, for lack of a better term, dream characters who have shown up on your stage. You've invited them to play in your play. You've invited them to play in your play and you cast them like a cosmic casting, central casting there, and you've cast them to play different parts in your in your psychodramas and help you to reenact the pains of what it was like when you were younger or you know and then try to get a different or better uh, ending than it was and so it's it's a great it's a great play is what's going on here and maharshi said a number of times it's all a great game of pretending <laughs> it's all pretending but then, you know, we, we pretend like we're not pretending. Yeah. We like it's all very serious. And we take this seriously. Nothing wrong with that. But we can't get lost. You know, the analogy that I um, use is um, if you go into a maze, like a corn maze, you know, you can go into mazes and uh, get lost real easily because they're meant to to confuse you. So you go down here, you get a blind alley, and you go back, and you double back, mm. and you get trapped and back and forth and you can make mistakes in a maze but we're not walking through a maze people think oh my life is like no it's not a maze you are not walking through a maze you're walking through a labyrinth and a labyrinth you know a labyrinth they're very different you enter a labyrinth and yes you go zigzag and all around and you get close to the center and then it pulls you away a couple yeah. of times and then finally, inevitably, invariably, you come right down to the center again. But you cannot get lost in a labyrinth. To get to the center in a labyrinth, all you have to do is to keep on keeping on. Just keep on keeping on. But, but we, you know, it's easy to lose heart when you get really close to the center, and then, oh, I almost have it, I almost have it. But then your path your life's path starts to pull you away, you know? And if you look at a uh, big 12 ring labyrinth, you're way out there at the end, you know, you say, oh, I've lost my way, I can't find it all. And then, but it just keeps, keep on going, keep on going. And when you get to the center, maybe the realization is, hey, there was no path to walk anyway. I never left it. I was always home. I was never, you know, lost or, or abandoned, or needed to find something. It was just, just play, mm. and to, and to relax into that, to sit in the middle 
of that of that incredible mystery of it and to love it all for being the way that it is and to love it for being the way that it isn't. Chuck, what's the difference between non-duality, as you might define it, and solipsism? Solipsism is like I am here and everything else is out there, but there's still that, that dualism. There's like I am here and there's there's something out there and this is different than than me, but somehow I'm the center of it. In non-dualism, there's no center at all. There's no center at all. In solipsism, there is a center that that says, I am all of these wonderful things. But non-dualism or non-dualism says no, there's there, there's really no center at all. So when I talk about you being the origin, it's not the you that you think you are. Yeah. Huge difference between you who you think you are and you who you really are. You, you you who you really are has no edges or boundaries or moving parts or anything like that. You who you think you are is the, the avatar, the one that is identified with having a past. I was raised here. These are my parents. These are my kids. These are my siblings. These are the schools I went to and my jobs and all that stuff. That's that's who you think you are, um, but that's the character as opposed to who you really are is the actor. And there's really only one of us really here, and there's only one voice. And, you know, it seems like maybe it's a dialogue going on between the two of us, but it's not a dialogue at all. It's a monologue. There's only one voice here. It's just coming out of two different mouths. And what difference is that from from the idea of no thing, nothingness, and oneness? I don't know. You know, we can get lost in the words of nothingness and awareness and consciousness. Mm. Uh, I've I've gone. Uh, I have some friends of mine that continually talk about those those words. I'm not sure what they mean, and and maybe they mean different things to them at different times. Even, um, it's. It's on the other side of the words that I think we need to go, or, or you know, in, in the space between the words, in that emptiness between the words is where is where the, the answer is, if if the answer is the, what you're looking for, but where the peace is, because the words are by nature dualistic, mm. dualistic by nature. The moment that you say what a thing is, you automatically imply, well, if it's that then it's not all these other things. And that's the wonderful, wacky world of, of dualism again. So it's only in the silence that I think you can find anything at all that, that you'd be looking for. And that's really what, what it ends up with. Mm. And that's why with these questions, the questions, 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 as long as you continue to ask questions, your mind and the, and the universe, call it what you will, is almost obliged to respond with some kind of answer and then that answer then in turn triggers another question which then triggers another answer yeah. and it's like those remember when we were kids we had those slinky toy things we'd put at the top of a stair and they'd go down the stairs one would lead to the other one would lead but the momentum of that would just move it on down but what would happen if you got to the end of of questions and stopped questioning altogether 
at the end of the questions, when you run out of questions and just sit in the quietude, in the, the mystery of, of just what is, uh, without having any questions, just stop, just stop and be silent. Uh, see, what's, see what shows up at that point. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely concur. Chuck, you said you were 28, 29 when you went to see Maharishi. Um, how did you integrate that like realization in your life? Well, I didn't see him. He died when I was okay. 10 years old <clears throat> in 1950, because I was born in 1940. <laughs> and uh, But I, I went to his ashram and uh, sat in the cave where, you know, he sat for years and years and years. Um, I still have some some rocks that I got from, from that area on Arunachala. Um, I don't know. You know, it's, it's hard to say how I integrated it, um, but it, it, I, I guess it, it, it was like a, a pilgrimage for me. I had to go to that place uh, and finally see this, for myself, where uh, where he was, where he was sitting, where he was, and um, I don't, I don't know. I can't really say what happened to me there, um, and I, I don't want to make anything up. But mm. it was a powerful experience. Mm. Which which you dreamed up? <laughs> yeah, which me? <laughs> well the me who I thought I was, was wanting to go over there. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, it's not like I made a conscious decision. I don't know why I do things. I don't know why I say things. Um, I, in fact, I, I'm sure that I'll never see this. I never watch any of my stuff. When you mentioned <laughs> that thing with Rick Archer, I said, oh my God, I, I remember doing it. I've never seen it. I don't know what I said. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to, you know, what I'm saying now. Uh, it just kind of shows up, and I I let it let it rip and see what happens. Um, beyond that, I I don't know what else I can say. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, Chuck. Well, we've done an hour, and I've loved speaking to you. So thank you for coming on. Um, hey, thanks, buddy. I appreciate you you asking me because, like I said, nobody usually asks me to come to come on and to do this, and I don't. I like to talk about this stuff, but there's not, uh, I don't know why I do, but, but I, yeah. I, I like this and I appreciate having the opportunity. So, so thank you for that. Oh, that's great. You sent me a great quote by Oscar Wilde yesterday. Yeah. Wasn't that great? I love Oscar Wilde. Yes. That's love talking about nothing. It's the only thing I know anything about. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, Chuck, you, you're an author, you've written numerous books. Do you, do you want to point people anywhere? Amazon or anything for your books? Yeah, they can go to um, my website, Chuck Hilligs, C-H-U-C-K-H-I-L-L-I-G um, dot com. Or you can just go on Amazon or just do a Google search on Chuck Hillig. And I, I'm every once in a while I do that. And I'm astounded by the number of links to my name. Because there's some of my books are in other languages. Um, like uh, German or Dutch or even Russian, um, Italian. Um, so yeah, just go there and explore and, and, and 
like like Alex had said, there's a number of videos of me at, at Sand and other places on YouTube. You can go see me. So, and I'm I'm available. You can you know email me. I'm I live alone here. Uh, I live about 60 miles southwest of D.C. in the Virginia woods. I've been here about 16 years. I love it. Go out every day, pick up trash around. Wow. My, my my son is is picking up trash. <laughs> <laughs> that for half an hour an hour every day uh you know seven days a week rain or shine i'm out there picking up litter and cigarette butts and stuff yeah gets me away from the damn computer are you writing anything else i am i'm writing a book that um i keep on going through more and more drafts of it and uh hopefully uh we'll see if hopefully it will come out next year but we'll see okay wonderful if i can help in any way of uh promoting that just let me know i will do that yeah thanks alex thanks for that i appreciate it okay chuck thank you for your time i appreciate it have a wonderful day and happy voting as well yes i'm off to do it right now thanks again. <laughs> bye bye, -bye.